0: Awesome. Well, I am going to be speaking this morning on a subject that every person so far that I've told what I'm speaking on has gone, really? Why? So you're in for a treat. (laughs) And that is, we are going to talk about the empire. Isn't that exciting? We're going to talk about the spirit of the empire, resisting the empire, or another title that I've wrestled with And I landed on, yeah, The Empire Strikes Back. So when I Googled that, yes. All right, for all of the nerds. Man, you guys have got two shout-outs in this series. (laughs) Yeah. Um, For those of you that are new or have missed a couple of weeks or a week recently, I would really like to urge you to go back and listen to the messages starting the first week of October. So this is the fifth message in the series, and we will end this series, I believe, on November 20th. So we got a couple of weeks left, but uh, every sermon in this series builds on it on the previous week. So it's really important if you miss a week to go back. And this is also a shameless plug for our podcast and a shameless plug for the website. But I promise it's for your benefit. So let me just do a brief recap on what we're talking about. Uh, We are preaching through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is 22 chapters. So in seven messages or eight messages, there is no way to preach the entire thing. Um, Really, we could spend about the same amount of time as we spent on the Lord's Prayer on the book of Revelation, maybe even a little bit longer. But we, uh, Pastor Jade primarily just thought that it would be a great time to jump into a text where the primary subject is how the people of God are able to follow the way of the Lamb in the midst of struggle, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of difficulty, which in their scenario was caused by the spirit of the empire. So it is pretty appropriate. I hope that you can see that. Um, The first week, Pastor Jade gave an introductory message, talked about how the book of Revelation is full of symbol, not code. Two very different things. Symbol, meaning that it meant something in the day, and it still means something transcendentally, not a code to be figured out for one specific single event, right? Then the second week, he preached one of the best messages and most important messages for the church, I believe, in this day. And that message is called Following the Lamb. I listened to it again in preparation for this message, and I tell you, I seriously was convicted. I've been on, in on the planning of this whole series from the very beginning months ago, and I was convicted yet again the second time that I heard that message. How can we, as the people of God, be faithful to identify the way of the Lamb and choose to follow it. This is of utmost importance for us as the people of God. Then in week three, Jeffrey did a masterful job, where he's right here, did a masterful job of unpacking Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And in that segment, we saw that the primary call for the people of God is be faithful. faithful. Stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. There are lots of things that we can do. There are lots of good things that we can do, lots of meaningful things that we can do. But what are we called to do? We are called to be faithful. And for some of the churches, some of the seven churches, it was be faithful in the midst of opposition, forceful, dominating opposition that might cost you your life in martyrdom. And for other churches, it was be faithful in your comfort and in your prosperity. Wake up. Be faithful. Wake up. And... Today, we find ourselves more in that scenario than we do in the other, but luckily enough for you, we're going to talk about both today once again. Last week, Pastor Jade and I had a uh, conversation, part two, as he so aptly titled it, where we talked about worship from Revelation 4 and 5, and we talked about all of the different things and the different possibilities that worshiping opens up for us as the people of God, all of the things that it does, about how cyclical the book of Revelation is, and just before the, the major things would happen, there would always either be a throne room scene or a reference to the throne room. Why? Because the throne room reassures us that God really is on the throne, and it reassures us that we have hope in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of whatever is about to come, whatever dragon, whatever beast, whatever bowl of wrath is about to come, we can stand strong on the fact that God is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Thank you. I appreciate Hey, Jeff, welcome back, man. Your voice is heard and appreciated, my brother. So today we're going to talk about resisting the empire. Now, a couple of uh, comments just before we jump in. One, like I already said, this is a very difficult um, book to tackle in seven or eight messages. This is not comprehensive, which is why I believe for the first time, at least in a long time, we're passing out notes for you guys. So if you are anything like me, when the teacher or professor passes out notes, I immediately go like this, and I start following along, and everything that he doesn't say, I'm like, what, what happened? Or everything that he says that's not on there, I'm going, is he off the notes? So I would like to urge you, follow along if you want, I'm probably going to jump quite a bit, but the notes are primarily for you guys when you go home as a tool, as a reference. Uh, this morning, there's a lot of things in your notes that we're going to just fly through, and I'm going to try and spend the bulk of the time at the end where we talk about how we can be faithful. But there, are, there is a, a huge chunk of the book of Revelation, a ch- essentially chapter 6, 6, all the way through chapter 16 that we're really not going to spend a whole lot of time on in this series. So one of the things I've done for you guys in the notes is put some of the key characters and what they represent, okay? So when you go back and you're reading, I didn't do that with everything, that would have been a book in and of itself, but there are a number of the key characters that will help you understand as we read through and hopefully redefine some of the things that we have uh, understood about the book of Revelation. So let us pray together before we jump into the text. Lord, you are good. And as we have so many times this morning already declared, you are on the throne. And God, I pray that that would bring us peace as the people of God. That would, it would bring us hope, that it would reassure us in our call, that it would reassure us in our mission I pray that that would strengthen us, that that would put our minds and our hearts at ease this morning. Jesus, we call you not just Savior, not just Creator, not just Redeemer, but we also call you Lord. We call you the rightful ruler of our hearts and all of creation. And I pray that this morning you would be glorified, God, would you set a filter on my mouth to prevent me from saying anything that would be harmful or destructive. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch the minds and the hearts of every person in this room and that you would teach us something, that you would shift our hearts, that you would change, help us to change our minds, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, I ask that this morning you would help us to think differently, to think along the lines of the way Jesus Christ thinks. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go before me and minister in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, church, we're going to jump into this text. So, the message is called Resisting the Empire, or if, if it makes you feel a little better, Resisting the Beast. The Beast, there are two characters in the book of Revelation, yeah, Resisting the Beast. Um, So let's start out by just defining what do we mean by empire? Because I don't think any of you came to church this morning to get a history lesson, but you're going to get a little bit of one. So what is an empire or what do we mean by empire? An empire is is an establishment that inflicts its will, military, economic, political, or cultural, on territories outside of its original realm. So an empire is any establishment that is advancing by imposing its will on another, either through brute force or coercion and deception. And, and this is going to be really, really important for understanding the text of Revelation. Another way that you might want to think of this is the empire could be also understood as the kingdoms of this world that's probably language that we're a little more familiar with. So when we speak about the empire, we are both talking about a historical, actual establishment, actual people who ruled and reigned on the earth, but we're also talking about a spirit that has always existed and continues to exist today in different forms. So we're talking about this, one, from the historical context to help us understand what the book of Revelation is saying. We're also wanting to identify what the spirit of the empire is so that we are not deceived by it. So let's look at the very top of your notes, and I just want to hit a couple of the objectives here for the message. The first objective is to define the empire and its dangers for us as the people of God. Look, I'm not into giving glory or, or building up the enemies of this world and the kingdoms of this world just for the sake of, of scaring us into following Jesus. That's useless. That's not fun. That's not right. That's not the way of the Lamb. We want to focus this morning on the on the empire and the spirit of the empire so that we can identify the ways that it opposes us as the people of God, okay? Number 2 to identify how the spirit of the empire coerces believers to be unfaithful witnesses. The title of the series is Faithful Witness. So this is in direct alignment with the series. If we can identify the ways that the empire is enticing us and pulling us away from being a faithful witness, then we will be prepared to act. And lastly, to equip the church to resist the spirit of empire by following the way of the Lamb. So what do we mean this morning by empire? There is... a a wonderful chapter in a book that both Pastor Jade and I have used for our messages uh, by a guy named Michael Gorman, and he gives seven traits of empire specifically from the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to hit a couple of them. There are all seven there in your notes. But the first one says that empire is a system of domination that partners with power promising more power that intoxicates common people with the false security of prosperity and power. Essentially, what this is saying is that the spirit of the empire entices power on earth with the lure of having more power and more prosperity. It entices them with greed, with pride, with fear, with insecurity, and promises them more of the same, but it always happens through domination and coercion, never by the way of the Lamb. The second one that I want to read aloud is the fourth one, that empires are always opposed to the true God and those who represent the true power of God as manifested in the life and death of Jesus. This is explicitly seen a number of times throughout the New Testament, that the spirit of the empire is what gets Jesus killed. And we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but Jesus didn't get killed for preaching how to get to heaven when you die. Jesus was killed because he challenged the authorities and the powers of the Roman Empire and the Jewish government. This is why Jesus was killed. Anytime we talk about the way of the lamb, it is inherently political. And don't worry, I'm not going to get into like endorsing and all that wild stuff just because Pastor Jay's not here. That we're going to stay away from, okay? But you have to recognize the message of the book of Revelation is a political message, It is. We have been trained in the West to think of separation of church and state, but Jesus was killed because his message affected every arena of life, that there is no area of our lives that the message of the gospel does not touch and should not transform. The last one, thank you. The last one I want to read is the seventh one of our list of seven here. Historical empires are in fact short-term manifestations or incarnations of something much more powerful and permanent that we may call empire or the kingdoms of this world. So what is this saying? This is saying as we look throughout history, and specifically in the book of Revelation, we look at the Roman Empire, that the spirit of empire manifests itself in governments throughout history and other establishments throughout history, but that is not the spirit of empire itself. The spirit of empire is something that that is demonic in nature, and the enemy uses it to lure governments. Why is this important? This is important because it helps us to recognize that a person or a grouping of people is not the problem. The problem is that we have an adversary, an accuser. We have an enemy. And he is defeated, but the manifestation of his defeat is not fully in our midst. And he still entices. He still accuses. He still opposes. He still comes against us. You know what's funny? The more that I prepared for this message, I realized this is eerily similar to the last message that I preached on Deliver Us From Evil. So it kind of helped me a lot. The way of empire is diametrically opposed to the way of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, that the way of the empire is in direct opposition to the way of the Lamb. Being faithful witnesses to Jesus will cause us to be in opposition to the spirit of empire. So let's talk about some historical context. For one, the people of God have always had to deal with empires both literal and the spirit of the empire. Walter Brueggemann, one of the uh, well-known Old Testament scholars of our time, says the Bible can be read as the people of God finding their way in the midst of empire. Let's think back just briefly throughout history. So the book of Genesis, we see the beginnings of the Egyptian empire. And as we move out of the book of Genesis, there are what I'll just call the ites empire. There's the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and I believe that there are seven or eight of them but these empires that are constantly, one is overtaking the other, one is overtaking the other. Then we move along throughout the Old Testament. We come come to the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and then ultimately the whole New Testament is written in the context of the Roman Empire. The people of God have always had to deal with this. Sometimes it's more right in front of their face, and sometimes it's beneath the surface. But when we read the Bible, this is a really helpful way to think of what it is to be a faithful witness. So there are uh, those in the seven churches that Jeffrey talked about a couple of weeks ago would have readily understood each of the characters that we're going to touch on today with ease. These characters would have been very... Uh, common for them as they are not for us. So this is the section where I've provided just some some blanket statements about each of the characters. So I'll just start with Babylon and read a little bit. When we see Babylon in the book of Revelation, Babylon symbolizes economic and cultural exploitation. Babylon is symbolic of literal and actual Rome. When we read, anytime we see Babylon in the in the book of Revelation they would have been thinking Rome. But like all prophetic literature, it had meaning then, Rome, and for us now, the spirit of the empire. Babylon is the archetype for all the empires of the world. Number two, the harlot, which is also at times called the whore in some uh, translations, or some translations it's, it's called the woman, is another depiction of Babylon and is more acutely the empire itself. So when we see this woman in particular in chapters 17 and 18, and a couple of times before there, this is just another way of portraying the empire. Number three, the bride represents the new Jerusalem. It represents the perfect city of God, what we are all eventually striving to be in and to become for ourselves. Number four, this is where we're going to spend a lot of time today, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. These can be said as like the satanic trinity. Just as we have Father, Spirit, and Son, in the book of Revelation, the opposition is portrayed as dragon, sea beast, and land beast. And then number five, let's jump here, the mark of the beast. How many of you guys were freaked out about the mark of the beast as a kid? I was, so I grew up in the assemblies of God. And uh, there was this thing called heaven's gates and hell's flames. Does anyone remember this? I think I... The majority of my salvations happened at Heaven's Gates and Hell Slaves. But, but here's what I remember as a kid. I remember, as much like Pastor Jade has said, reading the book of Revelation with so much fear and trepidation because I was thinking if I don't take the mark of the beast, I'm going to starve to death. Right? the mark of the beast controls the buying and selling. If I don't take the mark, I'm going to starve to death. And as a seven and eight and nine-year-old, that tortured me. I mean, not like for a long period of time, but every time that I would read Revelation as a kid, I would think like, what, what are we going to do? Like literally, what are we going to do? So then, you know, I started like as an eight-year-old buying canned goods and storing them under my bed. Yeah. No. No. Okay, so the mark of the beast. We're going to talk a little bit about this today. What does this actually mean? The mark of the beast is a parody of the Jewish phylacteries that were attached to the forehead or the hand and carried the Shema. So you may have seen these. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that that Orthodox and devout Jews wear these little leather boxes on their hand with... Uh, A leather strap um, wrapped around their arm and sometimes also on their forehead. And these are called phylacteries. And what they contain is the commandments, but primarily early on they contain the Shema, which was a statement of faith that says, Hero is real, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was to be a reminder on their heads of their identity. For the people of Israel, that everywhere that they went, every time they went anywhere, they would see someone else, they would be reminded, we serve the same God. That the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And when it was on their hands, they would be reminded every time they went to do anything, that the work of my hand should reflect my creator. It should reflect my identity as a son or daughter of the living God, as a kingdom of priests, Unto this God, that the work of my hands should reflect that. So the mark of the beast is not a literal mark where there is going to be a a tattoo artist that's going to con people and stamp 666 on their forehead or on their hand. The mark of the beast is a parody of the phylacteries, that people will be their identity and the work of their hands, their action will be controlled by the land beast and the way that the land beast promotes living. So, the mark of the beast is actually about a lifestyle. The mark of the beast is about a way, a belief system that manifests in the way that we live our lives. The mark is meant to facilitate the buying and the selling of goods and signifies allegiance to imperial consumption as provider rather than Yahweh. That makes a little more sense, doesn't it? And uh, I don't know about you, but I think we can already see. That the mark of the beast is um, at work among us in consumerism and consumption. The last thing I'd like to jump to there, if you'll see in your notes, it says the theology of victory. And the Nike in parentheses is not an accident. Nike is the word for victory in Greek. And the theology of victory is something we have to understand to really read the the book of Revelation well. This theology of victory was like an underlying belief for them as something similar to like in God we trust for us as Americans or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Something like that that was a core belief that everyone pretty much knew and in many ways either attempted to govern their lives or did govern their lives, even if it wasn't stated explicitly. So, this theology of victory was very, very prominent in Rome at this time. Why? Because the theology of victory told the people that as long as we are victorious in every battle and as long as we are profitable in all of our economic activities, then your peace and your protection and your prosperity are secure. And that is the theology of victory. The the Nike that you see there was just this underlying thing that was constantly in front of the people in the Roman Empire. A couple of things um, I put on here. One, that there were statues of the Roman goddess of military victory named Victoria or Nike all over all of the Roman provinces. There were these statues to constantly remind people that our hope for peace, prosperity, and security are in Rome's ability to continue dominating. Another thing that we see is that the soldiers carried images of victory into battle and on their shields. Uh, And lastly, senators burned incense to victory at the entrance of the Senate. This was a huge deal because this is what made their way of life worth living to the romans and to those that they conquered this theology of victory is important because what we see throughout the text is that the people of god are called to be faithful witnesses and they're called to conquer but the way that they conquer looks nothing like the way that rome conquers the way that they are victorious is nothing like the way that rome is victorious through economic exploitation and dominant military power The way that they, as the people of God, are called to be faithful witnesses and to uh, conquer or be victorious is by, there is that famous verse in in Revelation 12, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So we're going to jump into that here in just a minute, but I'd like to uh, turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to read a little bit. We're going to read the whole chapter of Revelation 13, not at once. We're going to read it in two different segments, so I'll give you time to get there. Revelation 13, we're going to start in verse 1. The dragon, we're not going to read 12 where the dragon is extensively talked about, but the dragon represents Satan. The dragon represents the head of the opposition, okay? So verse 1, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 crowns on his horns and each and on each head a blasphemous name the beast i saw resembled a leopard but had feet like a bear and a mouth like that of a lion the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound but the fatal wound had been healed The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That language right there is very important. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed." This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. So this is a text that has, has probably been read and, and misused in so many ways, but it is incredibly important to really understanding the book of Revelation. So what are some observations that we have? Number one, there are two beasts. There's a sea beast first that comes out of the sea, and there's another beast that comes after. And the two beasts are working together, but they are very, very different. So here's some observations. The sea beast represents imperial conquest in the form of violent political domination. We can see this in the appearance. He says that he looks like a leopard, has feet or claws like a bear, and has a face or a mouth like a lion, and speaks like a dragon. This is a a, uh, overt picture. Oops, let's knock some over. This is a picture of domination. These three animals are known for dominating. They find their prey, they get after it, right? These are not sneaky animals. This is not a snake or a lizard or a bird of the air that comes out of nowhere. These are animals that dominate. This picture of the sea beast is the picture of the spirit of the empire as a dominant military force that forces its people that forces people that are outside of its domain to either submit to its authority or be killed one way or the other. Not ashamed in any way, shape, or form. Doesn't matter if you know that it's the spirit of the empire. It doesn't care because it's stronger than you are. This we could say is the spirit of the empire that comes in or barges in through the front door. That's a good, a good way to say it. This is the spirit of the beast that comes right in the front door and confronts the people of God. The dragon as the head of the evil trinity has been conquered, so he gives his authority to the sea beast. The beast works for the dragon and the dragon utilizes the tools of the sea beast to bring worship to himself. Isn't that just like that little dragon? There is this line where it talks about the fatal wound that has now been healed. And this has been a source of controversy through the centuries, but what this pretty much at this time, scholars undoubtedly agree upon is the fatal wound is Nero. Nero was the, the emperor just before the time that the book of Revelation was written. And during the time of Nero, he was one of the worst and most vicious rulers that the world has ever seen. He was the guy that would crucify and burn Christians at the stake just because it helped light the city. He would actually light Christians on fire to illuminate roads as we would have streetlights today. This is Nero. So what this passage is referring to is that the fatal root wound represents that Nero has been killed, but now healed, meaning that the spirit of the empire was not contained in an individual. The spirit of the empire was not just Nero. Nero had been dominated and coerced by the spirit of empire and was a tool for it. So as soon as Nero dies, the fatal wound is now healed. What sense does this make? This means that just as soon as one ruler, one entity, one empire is conquered, that spirit somehow, some way, goes undercover and takes, takes up residency in someone else, somewhere else. Why is this important? Because it helps remind us that the, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Guys, we have got, oh man, don't get me into Facebook talk right now. <clears throat> but there is so much us versus them talk. There is so much talk in the people of God of us and them and these people are dangerous and these people. And look, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should be ignorant and that we shouldn't think I love to think. Thinking is wonderful. But we've got to pinpoint that our adversary is a power of darkness, not a human being. Because just as soon as you think Egypt is conquered, the Assyrians come. And just as soon as the Assyrians are conquered, the Babylonians come. Then the Romans come. Then the Germans come. Then Al-Qaeda comes. Then Hamas comes. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. We've got to realize that the spirit Behind this is not the individual. The individuals have been coerced, and they've been dominated, and they have bought in hook, line, and sinker. Anyways, let's move on. Thank you. Revelation 13, let us start in verse 11, where we left off. Here we go. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two long horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven and earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Once again, be reminded that's not a coincidence. So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is man's number. His number is 666. So this is where this gets really, really fun, because this is where the stuff starts to really hit home a little bit more. The land beast represents economic power through deception, propaganda, and coercion. We see this in the, in the beast out of the earth because he has a lamb-like appearance, but when he opens his mouth, it sounds like a what? like a dragon. This is an obvious parody against Jesus, who looks like a lamb, but functions like, or looks like a lion, but functions in a lamb-like way. This land beast is doing the exact opposite, is appearing harmless, but really speaks with the voice of the dragon. This beast represents economic power through deception and coercion. Deception and coercion. And this beast is much more of a struggle for humanity than the first beast because it's deceptive and we don't see it coming. The other beast comes and barges right in the front door and it's domination. It's submit or die, submit or die. One or the other, two options, that's it. And you're confronted in a moment with a choice. The land beast comes and coerces and uses pragmatic means. And and it says in there that he did miraculous signs to convince them. What does that mean? That means that his ways work. That he can bring economic prosperity. That the land beast does know the way to make things work well. That he does know how to bring peace and security and prosperity. But it's not in a lamb-like way. And that's where we get into trouble. He receives his authority from the sea beast as they work together to promote and strengthen each other. I don't know if you noticed, but in there it talks a little bit about uh, he, he was able to give breath to the sea beast. So what does this mean? Well, of course they're working together, but in what way? So if we think of them in their symbols as military domination and financial or economic coercion and deception, they reinforce one another. That when you dominate, it makes you able to prosper economically. And when you prosper economically, it reinforces your ability to dominate through military power. And this is how they work together. And all we have to do is look back. Look at Egypt in the Old Testament. This was Egypt. They had a strong military. They dominated. And they also were very prosperous and very fruitful. The same thing for the Roman Empire that we see here. So these two beasts are working together. The deceptive way of the beast seems harmless, but always ends up requiring your full allegiance. The land beast is after your allegiance. It wants you to be dependent on it. It makes false promises. It promises life. It promises that if you follow after my ways of consumerism and consumption, that your needs will be met. And it can do that for a time and for a season. The problem is that we know that true life only comes by way of a cross. It doesn't come by putting our trust in a beast. I talked about this a couple of months ago when we talked about dependence, that the people of Israel in the Old Testament so desperately wanted to be independent. They didn't want to rely on manna coming from heaven. They didn't want to have to rely on God saying he's gonna provide every morning. So what did they do? They took the manna, they put it in jars. And what did it do? it spoiled. As we see at the end of the book of Revelation and we're going to see here in just a minute in chapter 17 and chapter 18 that the beasts do have a way to make people prosperous. That there is a way of the beast that can look like flourishing human activity, but in the end it always leads to death and destruction because it comes by way of death and destruction. It promises peace by means of violence. There is peace as long as we conquer the rest of the world. And it promises prosperity as long as you give your allegiance over to it. So, the pressing issue for John's readers was how Christians who gave their highest loyalty to Jesus should conduct themselves in a world where economic and political structures assumed that everyone would worship the empire. Let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 17. If you would turn there, we're gonna read just a couple of verses. We're gonna very briefly talk about 17 and 18 because I wanna jump to the end of the message so you'll have to look at your notes. I'm gonna read uh, verses three and four from chapter 17. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, and this is the land beast, that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and the Abominations of the Earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And then let's turn over to chapter 18, and we're going to read the first few verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, for she has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice say, Come out from her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Let's jump down to verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O oh great city, O oh Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and the souls of men. And some of your translations say, and the slavery of man. This harlot of Babylon is another way of portraying Babylon, the spirit of the empire, who promotes idolatry, consumerism, vanity, and empire worship. She rides a land beast covered in blasphemous names, which means that like the beast we just talked about, she is riding, this this harlot is being set and carried on the principles of the land beast, which we see in just uh, as we just read eventually come to demise but the harlot uses beautiful things that god has created as tools to seduce men and entrap them in idolatry and consumerism it says all who grew rich from her excessive luxuries are drunk on her wine what does that mean it means that that whole list of things that we read are not bad things. A matter of fact, they're wonderful and beautiful things. They're things that God created and at the end of the book of Revelation, we see those very things being portrayed in the new Jerusalem. So what is so evil about this this, uh, whole list here? The key is at the very, very end it says, and on the slate, or it says, uh, let's see specifically, and bodies and souls of men. The harlot was being carried on the back of the land beast that was using people as commodities to bring wealth through the the buying and the selling of all of these cargos. The cargos themselves are not wrong, but the exploitation of man is what made the beast and made the harlot evil. It was that she wanted and became addicted, the empires of this earth become addicted to prosperity and they don't know when to stop and eventually they're using humans to fund their prosperity. And this is anti the way of the lamb, as we all would agree, I am absolutely sure of it. The deceptive way, or excuse me, the harlot provides goods for the fortunate through the exploitation of others. It promotes peace through violence and prosperity through exploitation. The spirit of the empire is revealed in the actions of the beast. The beast is most concerned with its own self-preservation, which is driven by fear and greed. To summarize it, we could say, the beast promotes violent conquest for its own good. The beast promises life that leads to enslavement and ultimately death. The beast is most concerned with self-preservation. The beast rules through domination and coercion using fear and manipulation. The beast hijacks worship through idolatry. The beast requires allegiance of the conquered inhabitants. And I'm gonna skip to the last one. The beast promotes classes of division. It promotes the us versus them mentality. Peter ends, says... All empires are acts of illusion. They present a world that lures humanity into false hopes and lays claim to our hearts and souls as the unquestioned status quo. The spirit of the empire wants to lure you by showing you its fruit and saying, there really is no other way. That is the deception of the empire, to say you can have peace and security, Your most basic needs will be met. You will have protection. There is no other way outside of the beastly way, though. That's the message of the beast. Jesus has come to show us another way. So the ultimate question at the end of a message like this, the ultimate topic is who really is Lord? This this ultimately comes down to the issue of lordship. So what do we mean by Lord? one who has rightful ruling or rightful power or rightful authority over others? This is the primary question. Lordship, as I've already said, is always political. When we fail to recognize the ways that Jesus' gospel was political, we miss much of the gospel. For instance, angels near Bethlehem were not the first to say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on peace, or on earth, peace and goodwill to men. A few years before the birth of Jesus, an altar of peace at Rome made a similar claim about Emperor Caesar Augustus. Many of the titles that we see in Scripture for Jesus, particularly in the Gospels, are not titles that were invented for Jesus. They were titles that were attributed to the emperor, and that's what got Jesus killed. Is that his people started identifying Jesus as the things that the emperor was supposed to be identified with? And how many of you can believe that an empire doesn't exactly like his lordship being messed with? When we pledge allegiance to Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, as Lord, we are giving him our full allegiance which cannot be divided in our lives. The allegi- our allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord bleeds over into every area and like I said, should transform every area of our lives. Also in Luke six forty six, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? See, this is one of the things that we still struggle with, right? We struggle with people saying, oh, this is a deal too good to pass up. You're telling me I can pray a prayer and say Jesus is Lord and I can just have security from from hell? When we call Jesus Lord, it has to be backed by attributing our whole, the whole concept of lordship to Jesus, meaning that when we call him Lord, it is more than just a term that we call Jesus. It is saying, Jesus, you're the rightful ruler of every area of my life, that there should be no area of my life that I do not look to you for your leadership, your example, your guidance. You are my Lord, The Beatitudes are perhaps the most concise teaching of Jesus' politics, where he says things like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. That didn't make any sense in Rome. Blessed are the peacemakers. No way. Blessed are the peacemakers. If we make peace, it's only a matter of time and we'll be dominated. Blessed are the merciful. Are you kidding me? Rome, merciful? Blessed are the meek. These sayings were never meant to be privatized and relegated to only our hearts. These sayings that Jesus is teaching are how we are to live in the midst and in opposition to the empire as the people of God. The kingdom of God is in direct competition with the kingdoms of this world. And I think we all understand that. And I think we would all agree with that. But I think where we might miss it sometimes, and I say we because I am as guilty as anyone, is when we compartmentalize parts of Jesus' lordship and we don't allow it to bleed over into all of our lives. Jesus has given us another way. If you would turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. Just turn toward the left a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2 we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to read one of the verses that has in recent years really wrecked my life. 1 Peter 2:21 is where we're going to start. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. For he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I grew up hearing the gospel that Jesus died for my sins and that Jesus died to do something that I could never do for myself. And that is 100% fully, completely true. Jesus died on a cross for your sins, for my sins, and did something that we could never do for ourselves. But that's not the whole gospel. The other piece of the gospel is that when Jesus died on the cross, he showed us the way to the cross, and he showed us how we should respond when we're being led to a cross. See, this is ultimately when we, when we read uh, in the Gospels about that story where Peter says, or Jesus says to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter just pipes up and says, you're the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, A plus, Peter. And the very next passage, P- Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and be crucified. And Peter says, no, you're not. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, this is because ultimately Peter didn't understand what being Lord actually looks like. Peter did not understand that the way Jesus would become Lord was through a cross. And much like for us today, the way of the lamb pulls us toward the cross. The way of the lamb is the way of self-sacrifice. The way of the lamb is loving your enemies and, of course, your neighbor. The way of the lamb is being willing to absorb wrongdoing into ourselves for the benefit of other people. The way of the lamb is laying down our lives so that another might benefit. This is the way of the lamb. The, the enemy is always pulling us away from the cross. So as Pastor Dan was talking in our ministry crew meeting this morning, I was thinking, and he uh, referenced the temptations of Jesus And what it is that the enemy is doing when he tempts Jesus specifically with those things. And I think at the heart of it all, what the enemy is really doing is he knows that if he can get Jesus to bypass the cross, then the beast and the empire rule forever. But if Jesus inherits those three things by way of the cross, and there are a people who are bold enough to follow him, then the way of the empire will be exposed once and for all. And the way of the empire will not be able to thrive when the people of God are constantly and continuously being driven to the cross and living their lives after the manner that Jesus lived his. The way of the lamb is ultimately to make life possible for others through sacrificial love and never through force or or coercion as the empire does. The lamb promotes nonviolent, self-sacrificing love. The lamb provides life through his own death. The lamb willingly makes sacrifices for the other. The lamb receives rightful worship that leads to life for all. The lamb rightfully rules and reigns. Man, that's a lot of ours. Rightfully rules and reigns as creator and redeemer. The lamb provokes the heart unto repentance by goodness and love. The lamb promotes peace using love and truth not dominant, coer- dominance and coercion. The lamb tears down walls of inequality and exploitation. The way of the lamb is the way that we are called to follow as faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. So how do we conquer as faithful witnesses to the lamb? Let's bring this home. There are two phrases that are mentioned multiple times throughout the book of Revelation. The first one is, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. It says it a couple of times, generally, at the end of these scenes. So at the end of the scene of the beast, it says this. And I think also at the end of the, the scene of the harlot, it says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. People of God, you are called to be faithful. You are not called to change things that are not meant to be changed. You are called to be faithful as the people of God. And that looks like different things in different spheres of influence. It looks like one thing in education. It looks like another thing in government. It looks like another thing in church. It looks like another thing in the home. But we have got to set our focus on being faithful, not making sure that we change everything around us. If we are faithful to the way of the Lamb, the things around us cannot help but be changed. Do you really believe that? Guys, Jesus changed the world with 12 disciples. Think about that. And one of them died before he did. Jesus changed the world with 12 disciples because he was faithful to follow the way of his father. We are called first and foremost to follow the way of the lamb. Our utmost concern is not changing things around us. That is a peripheral concern, but that happens when we're faithful. People of God follow the lamb. It also says this calls for wisdom. Let's not act like for a second that this is easy stuff. This is not stuff that is easy to discern, easy to understand, easy to apply, or certainly not easy to do. And I hope that you're not getting the impression from me that I think it is easy. This is difficult. The whole One of the premises in the book of Revelation is that it was a real possibility for Everyone who read this book as a faithful witness to encounter martyrdom. That's not easy, guys. And nobody's acting like this is easy. This requires wisdom and discernment and prayer and worship and looking at Jesus. It says multiple times this calls for wisdom. We have to be a people who are discerning and who are wise. And lastly, I'd like to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 12, and we're gonna wrap up here. Revelation chapter 12. I'm gonna start in verse 10. And John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It is a extremely minor possibility for all of us in the room that we will actually encounter death for our faith in Jesus Christ. I suppose it is possible, certainly, but it is probably a very slim chance. So how does this really apply to us as the people of God? It says that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What does that really mean? Number one, it means that they overcome by the work, by trusting in the work of Jesus that he and only he could ever do. And you and I cannot do anything of value without relying on the work of Jesus as doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And then there is this line about, and the word of their testimony. What does that mean? Our testimony as what Jesus has done for us is incredibly important, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about them testifying with their mouth and with their lives, that Jesus is actually Lord, meaning he's actually ruling and reigning, and he's actually the supreme authority over their lives. The word of their testimony means that they lived their lives after the way of the Lamb. It's not to diminish your personal testimony. It's wonderful and it's powerful. That's just not what this is talking about. This is talking about your life as a witness to Jesus Christ being on the throne. That means for you, when everything in your life looks like crap, and I'm sorry I said that, but when everything in your life looks tough and like a mess, that you can still be full of hope, that you can still be full of joy. That's what it looks like to live your life as a witness to Jesus Christ. It looks like when everything around us is falling apart and we have perhaps the craziest election cycle that we could have, any of us could have ever imagined. It looks like the people of God are not frantic. It looks like the people of God are trusting in the way of the lamb. Going, you know what? If one party lives, it looks like this to be faithful. And if another party wins, it looks like this to be faithful. But as the people of God, we're called to be faithful nonetheless, That's what being a faithful witness to the way of the Lamb looks like.